railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. The Libertarian Party has requested President Trump grant a full pardon to Ross Ulbricht. That's a quote from the Libertarian Party. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part four of an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland. I'm also known as the Crypto Podcaster. You may know me from my other podcasts, such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Now, Railroad is a podcast series revealing the behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner working and conflicts of the Silk Road story, and you'll meet the people involved. Now, I didn't produce the Railroaded content you're about to hear. I'm just distributing it as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Ulbrich, Lynn Ulbrich, or anyone else connected with FreeRoss.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroaded was created by the Free Ross team and is narrated by Adrian Bassan. He does a great job. Now, in today's episode, you'll hear Chapter 13, Fighting for Freedom. Chapter 14, Finding the Servers. Now it's time to listen to the show. Railroaded. The Targeting and Caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 13. Fighting for Freedom Jay Lederman, criminal defense attorney, said, The case comes in, it's a big splash, it's all over the news. Almost a year later, these big, mean, offensive counts get dropped. It's not a front-page story anymore. It's somewhere in the recesses of the paper. It's just not a big deal. At that point, people already associate the case with murder for hire. No prosecutor would ever say that's what they're doing. But as a long-term criminal defense attorney, this happens all the time. Ross hired New York attorney Joshua Dreytel to defend him. His first courtroom appearance in New York was presided over by Magistrate Judge Kevin Fox to determine if Ross would be granted bail. Turner, appointed by Barrara as lead prosecutor, claimed at the hearing that Ross was behind the murder-for-hire plot involving Green and brought up information from the laptop about five other murder-for-hire attempts. Dreytel was ambushed late the night before with this allegation giving him no time to consult with Ross or prepare a defense. After using them to deprive Ross of bail, Turner dropped these allegations and never brought them to trial. 
Turner also asserted without evidence that Ross might have bitcoins stashed away somewhere that he could use to fund an escape. Despite 70 letters to the court attesting that Ross was not a danger or flight risk, $1 million in pledges from many friends and family, including their homes and life savings, and the fact that Ross was a first-time offender, Judge Fox denied his Eighth Amendment right to bail. With Ross secure in prison custody, Turner's first communication with him was a threat. He told Ross that if he didn't plead guilty to the charges he was arrested for, which would force him to spend a minimum of ten years in prison, then Turner would add the kingpin charge, raising the minimum to twenty years. Either way, Turner said he would recommend that the judge sentence Ross to life in prison without parole. The judge was Catherine Forrest, district court judge in the Southern District of New York, who had been officially recommended to the bench by Schumer. Ross refused to cooperate with Turner and was indicted on February 4, 2014, beginning the long, arduous process of defending himself against the federal government from within a Bureau of Prisons detention center. From the outset, Ross and Dreytel challenged Barrara's case on legal grounds. The charges were conspiring to distribute narcotics and fake identifications, hack computers, launder money, and the promised kingpin charge, typically reserved for drug lords sitting at the apex of a large organization they control with violence. Conspicuously absent from the New York indictment was any charge relating to either the murder plot that Force and Bridges staged with Green or the others used to deny Ross bail. The District of Maryland did include Green in a separate indictment, but dismissed it in its entirety nearly five years later. Dreytel argued that these charges have never been used to prosecute the conduct alleged against Ross, that he operated a website through which other persons, sellers and purchasers, committed illegal activity. Congress passed a law to protect providers of interactive computer services so they may operate without fear of civil liability for the content posted by others. Congress wanted a freewheeling Internet that has flourished to the benefit of all with a minimum of government regulation. The law is broadly worded, with a provider needing only to show that the information was provided by a third party to qualify for immunity. This is precisely what Silk Road accomplished by design. It was an open platform, like many other e-commerce websites, with decisions about what to sell, at what price, and to whom left up to the users. This was exemplified by the fact that much more than drugs, fake IDs, and hacking software were available on the site. Items exchanged included jewelry, writing services, food, antibiotics, and other legal items. In fact, Prior to this case, no internet service provider had been criminally charged for permitting content or even hosting websites that tolerate or even promote illegal activity. Google is the most common defendant in lawsuits where this law has been invoked, and other major ISPs and browsers have also regularly availed themselves of this immunity. With the lack of a single prosecution of a provider hosting illegal conduct, Ross's case constitutes arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Indeed, 
the gulf between civil immunity enjoyed by all other providers and the criminal liability and potential punishment Ross faces is incalculably vast. Judge Forrest apparently cared little about this double standard. She accommodated Turner, who argued that the federal criminal laws are expansive and adaptable and readily reach conduct online to the same extent as if it occurred on the street. She acknowledged that Silk Road was nothing more than code, until third parties agreed to use it. Yet despite the fact that it was not, she declared that Silk Road was specifically and intentionally designed for the purpose of facilitating unlawful transactions. By saying this, she equated privacy and anonymity with all things illegal. To make Silk Road illegal as a whole, and not just the specific illegal transactions that occurred on the site, it had to be characterized as a vast criminal enterprise with Ross at the top. In her ruling, Judge Forrest falsely claimed that Ross posted a sign on a worldwide bulletin board that said, I have created an anonymous, untraceable way to traffic narcotics, a statement Ross never posted. She called the website a vast conspiracy, saying that because each time someone signs up and agrees to Ross's standing offer, he or she may become a co-conspirator, and that Ross's alleged co-conspirators are several thousand drug dealers on Silk Road. Co-conspirators may not know each other's identity, she continued, and the fact that Silk Road was automated does not preclude the formation of a conspiracy. There is no requirement that any words be exchanged at all. The judge also falsely claimed that Ross designed, launched, and operated Silk Road for the specific purpose of facilitating narcotics transactions that he knew would occur. Analogizing a website host with a mafia boss, she said Ross acted as a sort of godfather. In court, Draytel argued that companies like AT&T are in the same position. They know people are using their network for drug deals, they're texting, they're making calls. I know that. It's foreseeable to me. If I'm selling drugs to one person using my AT&T phone, does that make every other drug seller on AT&T a co-conspirator of mine? Does that make AT&T a co-conspirator? No. Ross made several other arguments, clearly showing that the government's charges could not be applied to the alleged conduct and violated his constitutional rights. In spite of this, Judge Forrest allowed the prosecution to proceed, denying the motion in its entirety. Chapter 14. Finding the Servers Neil Franklin, Executive Director at Law Enforcement Action Partnership and 34-year police veteran, said, we have become overly aggressive with our criminal justice system in the U.S. We imprison more people and apply longer sentences than any country on the face of the planet. People like Ross should be afforded the opportunity of redemption as soon as possible. For Ross, that is now. Ross also challenged the government's investigation itself. All the subpoenas and warrants used Tarbell's seizure of the Silk Road server as their starting point for probable cause. If the seizure had been done illegally, all subsequent evidence, including the information on the laptop, would be suppressed, and the government's case would fall apart. 
Ross filed a motion to suppress the evidence unless Tarbell could explain how he found the server. Tarbell claimed under oath that by examining the individual packets of data being sent back from the Silk Road website, he noticed that the headers of some of the packets contained a certain IP address. When he typed the IP address into an ordinary non-Tor web browser, a part of the Silk Road login screen, the CAPTCHA prompt, appeared, thus confirming that the IP address in the headers was the IP address of the Silk Road. Tarbell's explanation was closely scrutinized because Tor is supposed to prevent exactly what he claimed he did. Cybersecurity experts worldwide, including Robert Graham of Errata Security, Brian Krebs of Krebs on Security, and Nicholas Weaver, researcher at ICSI and Berkeley, were highly skeptical. I find it surprising that when given a chance to provide a cogent on-the-record explanation for how they discovered the server, they instead produced a statement that has been shown inconsistent with reality, and that they knew would be inconsistent with reality, Weaver said. Tarbell responded that he didn't record or save any of his work, violating the most rudimentary standards of computer forensic analysis. The details are vague, Graham noted. It is impossible for anybody with technical skills, such as myself, to figure out what he did. And the second problem is that some of the details are impossible, such as seeing the IP address in the packet headers. Furthermore, he saved none of the forensics data. You'd have thought that, had this been real, he would have at least captured packet logs, or even screenshots of what he did. Weaver explained exactly why Tarbell's story didn't make sense. The server logs which the FBI provides as evidence show that, no, what happened is the FBI didn't see a leakage coming from that IP. What happened is they contacted that IP directly and got a PHP MyAdmin page. But how did they know to contact that IP address in the first place? The CAPTCHA couldn't leak in that configuration and the IP Tarbell visited wasn't providing the CAPTCHA, but instead a PHP MyAdmin interface. Thus, the leaky CAPTCHA story is full of holes. The experts suspected another explanation. Many of us believe it wasn't the FBI who discovered the hidden Silk Road server, but the NSA. We believe the FBI is using parallel construction creating a plausible story of how they found the server to satisfy the courts, but a story that isn't true, Graham said. I am a foremost expert on this sort of thing. I think Christopher Tarbell is lying. Given the massive breadth of the NSA's dragnet electronic surveillance, Dreytel later argued to the court, this case is a prime candidate for parallel construction, particularly in light of the Silk Road's exclusive operation on the Internet and its use of both the Tor network and Bitcoin, as well as the intensity of the government's multi-year investigation aimed at finding the identity of those operating the website. According to Reuters, who first revealed the NSA's practice of parallel construction just two months before Ross's arrest, law enforcement agents receiving illegal information from the agency have been directed to conceal how such investigations truly begin, not only from defense lawyers, 
but also sometimes from prosecutors and judges. Whether the truth was concealed from Turner or not, he shot down the idea that the NSA was involved. Ulbricht offers no evidence of governmental misconduct to support this sweeping claim. Instead, he conjures up a boogeyman, the NSA, which he suspects was responsible for locating the Silk Road server. Turner called Dreytel's search for how the servers were actually found a pointless fishing expedition aimed at vindicating his misguided conjecture about the NSA being the shadowy hand behind the government's investigation. Turner reiterated Tarbell's explanation, which, despite widespread expert skepticism, did satisfy the court. Judge Forrest denied the defense's motion to suppress evidence and refused to allow an evidentiary hearing to determine the truth. More than three years later, Edward Snowden revealed that the NSA had worked urgently to target Bitcoin users in the months leading up to Ross's arrest. They used a program codenamed Oakstar, a collection of covert corporate partnerships, enabling the agency to monitor communications along fiber-optic cables that undergird the Internet. A classified March 8, 2003 NSA memo stated that they were using these capabilities in their mission of looking at cyber targets that utilize online e-currency. It is hard to imagine a higher priority government target using Bitcoin in 2013 than Silk Road and DPR. In addition, Turner lied to the court about how the government seized the server once Tarbell found it. He told the magistrate judge who signed off on the warrants that the U.S. government has a mutual legal assistance treaty, MLAT, with Iceland, where the server was located, thus giving him the legal authority to seize it. However, Turner later admitted that this is not technically correct, as the United States does not have an MLAT with Iceland. The legal basis for the warrant appears to have been unimportant to Judge Forrest, she ruled that the defense's motion to suppress is denied. In the same pretrial ruling, Judge Forrest rejected several other challenges to the investigation. Ross asserted his Fourth Amendment right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures, saying Turner violated his rights when he tracked him down and, using pen traps, gathered all his Internet traffic information without a warrant. Turner also violated Ross's rights when he did eventually obtain warrants by sweeping up every scrap of information about Ross and his life going back over a decade from his laptop and email and Facebook accounts. His entire digital life was the government's to examine, despite the Fourth Amendment requiring the government to identify in advance the particular items they seek. At Turner's insistence, Judge Forrest also explicitly forbade Dreytel from conveying to the jury the political and philosophical motivations behind Silk Road, as some jurors might sympathize with those views. The jury was also not to know that Ross could be imprisoned for life if found guilty, in case they found this excessive. Also, at Turner's behest, the judge forbade Ross to acknowledge or smile at his family in the jury's presence, threatening increasingly necessary measures should he disobey. In the wake of Judge Forrest's rulings, 
the path was cleared for the government to bring Ross to trial. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org slash petition. Over 175,000 people have signed it so far. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also find Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and that use just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. And I would love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really does help way more than you know. And please share this podcast with your friends on social media and let's get the word out there. This episode is sponsored by the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. Take a look at the great conference coming to Dallas, Texas at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in person in Dallas. So until next episode, this is Gary Leland from CryptoPodcaster.com saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Mm-hmm.